Now, I've always been a person that has appreciated a good deal. I'm kind of a, a deal shopper, as it were, and it's my habit whenever I frequent a store, be it uh, you know when my wife and I are going to Walmart or Menards or whatever uh, the case may be, it's my habit to visit the clearance aisle of that store. As a matter of fact, you ask me any store that I regularly frequent and I can tell you exactly where the various clearance aisles are in those particular areas of interest. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, not necessarily a good thing. Maybe, maybe you uh, roll your eyes at Pastor Wickler or whatever the case may be, but I, I enjoy a good deal. I like getting good deals. But when you're a deal shopper, one of the things you find very quickly is the difference between a good deal and a marketing ploy that's supposed to look like a good deal. Generally, particularly when it comes to advertisements and coupons, the extent of a good deal can be determined by whether or not there is a little superscripted number or superscripted asterisk beside or above any given item. You know what I'm talking about. You see an advertisement for perhaps a restaurant, a fast food restaurant or whatever the case may be, and it says, free. And then you see that little asterisk above the free and you follow that asterisk down to where that asterisk uh, marks some wording and that wording says something to the effect of free with a purchase of equal or greater value and you must buy a drink which of course we know that the drink is the part where they make all their money on and you must buy this and you must buy that and you must buy this and then it's free and you recognize that what they are trying to pass off is a really good deal is in fact a really good deal for them not as much for you you know things in this life are full of what we might call fine print retailers bankers lenders lawyers just about every profession has things they don't want to tell you about the supposed benefits that you are supposed to receive from them last time we were together for a Lord's Supper emphasis service that would have been three months ago at this point we focused upon the distinction between the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, which was established by the blood of sheep and goats, according to Hebrews 9, and the New Testament or the New Covenant established by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, the focus of that particular message was that the New Testament, the New Covenant, was in every way superior to that of the Old Testament, to that of the Old Covenant. Well, as we continue today in Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 18, we're going to learn, as we just sang about, that the remission of sins brought to us by Jesus Christ and offered unto us through belief on his name has no fine print. There is no asterisk in the corner whereby you would look down and it would say remission except for, remission on the condition of, in the sense of works. The remission is full. No exceptions, no hidden clauses that you didn't read between the lines regarding the remission of Jesus Christ. It is, as we would say, once for all. And so on this Lord's Supper emphasis evening, consider with me the salvation that has been bought for you once for all through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's read the whole passage together. Hebrews 10 Verses 1 through 18. 
For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldst not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law, then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes in the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had once sacrificed for sin, forever sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. The first consideration I would like us to think about this evening is found in verses 1 and 4. Consider the consistent frustration of condemnation. Consider the consistent frustration of condemnation. Now I'd like to paint a scene for you and imagine it with me as we consider the Old Testament law. As the Hebrew law describes on the 10th day of the 7th month, the high priest washes his body and puts on holy linens set aside specifically for that one day of the year. Known to the Hebrews as the Day of Atonement. He takes from the congregation of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Now, he first offers a sin offering for himself and for his house on this day. He will then take two goats and he will cast lots over those two goats. The one that the lot falls upon will be the one that has been chosen by God, according to the lots, to be a sin offering for the people. He would then take a censer, and he would fill that censer with the coals, with the burning coals from off the altar of God, and he would bring that censer into the veil of the holiest of holies. And with that censer and the burning coals from off the altar, he would take and he would place upon that Sweet incense. And as he did so, the smoke from that incense would fill the room, and the scriptures say it would cover the mercy seat. He would then take blood of the bullock that he had sacrificed for himself, and he would take that blood and he would dip his fingers in that blood and he would sprinkle it onto the mercy seat, 
and then he would sprinkle it, it says, before, in front of, in the face of the mercy seat. And he would sprinkle the blood onto it. He would then go out and he would kill that goat that they had cast lots for. He would kill that goat and that would be the sin offering for the people. First he had to make an offering for himself. Now he would take the goat for the people and he would go back into the Holy of Holies and he would again sprinkle upon the altar the blood. He would then make an atonement upon the altar for the transgressions and sins of the people putting the blood upon the horns of the altar as we see described where he would dip his hands in the blood and then put it on the horns of the altar. And finally, the last step in the process in the Day of Atonement is he would take that goat that that won the lottery during the casting of lots, the one that didn't get killed, and he would lay his hands upon that goat and he would confess before God the sins of the people. The idea being that God would then transfer the sins of the nation of Israel onto this goat. And then they would release that goat into the wilderness. He was called the scapegoat. And that goat would be released into the wilderness where he was wandered. He would wander. He would go. He, they would never see him again. The implication being that on that day, the sins of the past year having been atoned for by blood were then transferred from the people to some other creature that being innocent of the sins of the people yet the sins being transferred onto this goat and then those sins would leave the people forever. They would never see that goat again. Those sins would never be brought up again. What we talked about this morning about forgiveness. Those sins were separated from the people. God prescribed this atonement yearly. And according to Leviticus 16.30, He did so that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Now, the Day of Atonement was a very important day for the Jewish people. On this day, all of those sins, as we talked about, was was, uh, the sins of the past year, the sins since the previous Day of Atonement, would be atoned for, would be carried out by the scapegoat. A tremendous blessing for people who found themselves unable to keep the law and the demands that God had placed upon them. Yet, as you think about this day, can you imagine how this day might have also been not just a day of joy, but also a day of frustration? Can you relate to the sorrow and the frustration of sin? We, just like the children of Israel, want to serve God. We know God is God. He is worthy of our devotion. He is worthy of our service. But we so often fall short of what God would desire from of us. But while we as believers still feel this sorrow over sin, this sorrow over falling short, we do not experience the frustration that these Old Testament saints would have experienced through the law. See, the Old Testament saint knew that the Day of Atonement was something that would have to be done again. They see the scapegoat leave through the gates of Jerusalem and they are so thankful that the sins of this past year have been atoned for whereby the scapegoat has taken those sins, the blood of the the goat that didn't live covers their sins. But the very moment that that scapegoat left, 
their sins began to build for another year. The very moment that those sins were covered on the altar, there were new sins piling up until the next day of atonement. What a frustration. And this is what Paul means when he says that the law is but a shadow, 10 verse 1, a shadow of the good things to come. Paul uses the illustration of a shadow to make the point concerning the superiority of Christ's blood to that of the Old Testament sacrifice. Now, let's think about a shadow for a moment. We don't have very good shadows in here, so we can't look at it in a, in a particular context. Perhaps we could uh, simulate a shadow, uh, but I won't do so this evening. But I think most of you understand what a shadow is. When you think about a shadow, a shadow reveals the likeness of a form. It reveals a shape without the specifics. Now, it can show you the shape. It can show you perhaps the size. It can even reveal in part the function or the movement of something. But it is by no means as detailed or complete as the object from which the shadow is derived. You will never see a shadow that is as complete as the thing that is casting the shadow. So too, Paul describes the Old Testament sacrificial system as a shadow of things to come. It showed the form of redemption. In part, it showed the operation of redemption, but it was quite insufficient in and of itself to form the basis upon which man's redemption could be completely secured and man's sin could be completely remitted. Now, the glimmer of silver lining in the law was the reality that God had in fact made a way for their sins to be atoned. But this provision being but a shadow of true remission brought with it that frustration. The frustration of the law. And so within the law there was a yearly sacrifice made for a yearly remembrance of those sins which caused man to fall so desperately short of God's righteousness. Verse 4 puts it this way. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. It can cover sins, but there is no remission. There is only a covering, an atonement. So we've considered the consistent frustration of condemnation, the consistent frustration of the law. Consider with me second, the complete freedom of Remission. Consider the complete freedom of remission in verses 5 through 14. In verse 5, Paul switches scenes from contemplation on the Old Testament sacrificial system to the full reality of remission through the blood of Christ. Now, in doing so, Paul strings together numerous Old Testament quotations that refer to the will of God for men not resting inherently in the Old Testament sacrifices or in this Old Testament sacrificial system, but rather resting in the intention of God throughout the ages to provide a means whereby man might be reconciled back to God. And so the importance of the Old Testament <coughs> sacrificial system was not an importance in and of itself. It was important to the, degree, to the degree to which it taught man, prepared man, and foreshadowed that which was to come. Now he begins by quoting Psalm 40, verse 6, in verse 5. 
He says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Now, as he quotes Psalm 40, verse 6, the man in the book of Hebrews quotes it differently than what we read in Psalm 40, verse 6 in our Bibles. Let me read to you Psalm 40, verse 6 in our King James Bible. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire, mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sent offering and sin offering, excuse me, hast thou not required. Do you see the different phrase? Hebrews 5, uh, 10 verse 5 says, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Psalm 40, sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire, mine ears hast thou opened. The Hebrew does not say, a body hast thou prepared me, but rather mine ears hast thou opened. Not Hebrews, but the Hebrew Old Testament is what I mean by that. The implication being that whoever is writing there in Psalm 40 has heard and understood the scriptures that God's loyalty is not in the law, but in the redemption and salvation of his people through obedience. Now, interestingly enough, if you were to read this particular passage, Hebrews 10, verse 5 and 6, and then you were to read Psalm 40, verse 6 in the Septuagint, I don't normally do this on a Sunday evening, but somebody, let's get a little bit interactive. Can somebody explain to me or remind us what is the Septuagint, also known as the LXX? Mike? It is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And so if, if we read the Septuagint, well, let, let me just do this. Let me read you an English translation of the Greek Old Testament. An English translation of the Septuagint. Sac and you, you go ahead and read in Hebrews 5 and, uh, 10, 5, and 6 while I read Psalm 40 in the Septuagint. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Whole burnt offering and sacrifice for sin thou didst not require. So what we see is that the book of Hebrews quotes the Septuagint, perhaps, instead of quoting the Hebrew Old Testament. Now that may be the case, or it may be that the Hebrew Old Testament did in fact read that, and something has changed in our Hebrew Old Testament over time. Either way, this gives us a bit of a problem. Why would the inspired New Testament quote the Septuagint, which is a translation of the inspired scriptures over the inspired Old Testament in Hebrew. Now, I do not, I'm afraid, have an answer to that question. I have theories. If you are interested in my theories, you may come up afterwards and ask me about my theories. It's not really relevant to what we're talking about today. But what I do want to remind you of is when we were talking through our text teaching on the inspiration and preservation of scripture as we were talking through that together I remind you that our faith position is not an airtight argument there are in fact problems 
with even our faith position on the scriptures. There are contradictions that we cannot as of yet, based upon the scholarship and our understanding, explain. But our faith position does give us maximum certainty that what we have has been kept by God and kept free from the corruption of humanism and cultural Marxism and all of those things prevalent in the church today. How is it that we see this disparity? I can't explain it. I really cannot. But I can confidently stand upon the inspired and preserved word of God based upon the faith position that we hold to in this church and as believers. And I thank the Lord, excuse me, I thank the Lord for the maximum certainty that we have through the faith position that we hold. I did want to bring that up, however. Getting back to our thought in the second consideration that we are uh, consider the, considering the complete freedom of remission, really the argument that the preacher is making as he continues uh, quoting here is that the coming of Jesus Christ was nothing short of the will of the Father to do through His blood what could not possibly have been done through the law. And so in verse 9, we see it says, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. God took away the first, the Old Testament sacrificial system, that he may establish the second. Complete remission from sins, complete freedom from sins by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Now notice verse 10, and I love it. By the which we uh, will we be sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. By which, by the second work accomplished through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, believers have been sanctified, have been set apart, have been made holy unto God once for all. And that's the phrase that I would like you to be repeating in your mind. We sang it. We're hearing it. This is the phrase I want us to keep repeating in our mind throughout our Lord's Supper emphasis this evening. Once for all. Once for all. Once for all. See, that is the concept of remission. That is what remission is. It is full pardon, full release. There is no charge hanging over the head of one who has received full remission of sins. The man who has received remission of sins will not one day stand before God and hear the words, well, this sin wasn't covered under the blood. That sin was in the exception clause. Didn't you read the exception clause? Didn't you see the asterisk next to once for all? Didn't you see the asterisks next to believe? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved? Asterisk. Didn't you see that? Didn't you read the exception clause? You didn't read the exception clause? Well, I'm afraid you don't quite make it then. That's the unforgivable one. That's the one that, doesn't, that didn't find itself under the blood. There's none of that. It's not in the scriptures. Remission is once for all. No exception clause allowed. Jesus once offered himself for all sins. Then he sat down at the right hand of the Father awaiting to awaiting the fulfillment, excuse me, of God's perfect will. And so you and I do not have any cause to remember our sin. 
We do not have a yearly mem- remembrance as the Hebrews had a yearly remembrance of all the ways that we scorned God's love for us. And so Romans 8, 1 tells us, you probably know the verse, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The Day of Atonement was a day of release, but it was also a day of frustration over condemnation. It was a constant reminder. What a day. What a day when the, the, the sins would be transferred to the scapegoat, where the, the atonement was made, and yet in the back of your mind, as you see that scapegoat wander, why does it have to happen again next year? It's just going to happen again next year. I'm still going to keep sinning. I'm still going to keep failing God. I'm going to fall short today and tomorrow. It's going to happen again. But there's no such reminder in the life of a Christian. Because there's no such reality in the life of a Christian. The believer still sins. We know that. But he can never fall short of God's righteousness because he is clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is why one day, according to Ephesians and according to Colossians, Jesus Christ will present us before the Father holy and unblameable. That is how that can happen. Because he's not going to be presenting your actions before the Father. He's going to be presenting his before the Father. The Father is not going to look at you and say, Wow, look how good Evan is. Or look how good Brady is. Or look how good anyone in this room is. He is going to look at us and he's going to say, I see my son, Jesus Christ. I see my son's blood. I see my son's sacrifice. I see the remission of sins. In the very same way, God looked at Israel on that day of atonement and he saw their sin no more because that sin was with the scapegoat wandering in the wilderness outside of the city of Jerusalem. Now we sin. We grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We quench the Holy Spirit of God. We fall out of fellowship with God until such time we confess and forsake our sin. But none of this changes the power of the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed once for all for our sin. And so there is no need any longer to contemplate the condemnation of the sins of tomorrow or of next week or of next year because there is no condemnation for the sins of tomorrow or next week or next year. This is the superiority of the blood of Christ and this is why it says in verse 14, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Perfection. The idea of completion. The idea of having everything necessary. Perfection. If you are in Christ today, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, if you are under the blood of Jesus Christ, that's you. You have been perfected until tomorrow. You have been perfected until the next day of atonement. You have been perfected until you sin again. You have been perfected, the scriptures say, forever. Forever. Them that are sanctified. So we have considered this evening, number one, the consistent frustration of condemnation. Considered, number two, 
the complete freedom of remission. Consider third and finally with me, verses 15 through 18, the consistent assurance of remission. Consider the consistent assurance of remission. Let me read verses 15 through 18 again, because they're good. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in the, into their hearts, and into their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of this, these is, there is no more offering for sin. So now the great contrast has been drawn. The Old Testament saint would perform the Day of Atonement ritual knowing full well that the lamb, that this goat that was sent out, that the goat that was slain would do nothing for the sins of tomorrow but only for the sins of today and for the past year. Yet, the New Testament saint rests under the joy, under the peace, under the comfort of no condemnation for the sins of yesterday, for today, or tomorrow through the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. But the question still remains. How do we know? How are we assured that we're not under this condemnation? See, we don't always feel like we're not under condemnation, do we? Because we still sin. There are times in my life where having said or done something that I knew was wrong... I feel about as far from God as I could possibly feel. And I wonder again and I marvel again at how a sinner like me could be found holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in the sight of God. But that's the reality. And so if we can't trust how we feel, we know that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We know that the scriptures tell us if our heart condemn us that God is greater than our hearts. We know Romans 8.1 tells us that there, is that there is no condemnation. And yet sometimes we feel the condemnation. So if we cannot always trust our feelings to feel good in the eyes of God, how is it then that we can have full assurance even when we have sinned before God, even when we, when we do not feel like God should love us, even when we do not feel like we ought to have the privilege of remission of sins and of, of an eternity in, in heaven? Where is our assurance found? And that's what Paul says in verses 15 through 18, that the Holy Ghost is the divine assurance to man that he is clothed in Christ's righteousness. Verse 15 tells us that the Holy Ghost is a witness to us that our sins have been remitted in faithfulness to the promise of the new covenant. And then he quotes the new covenant. The new covenant is found in Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. Let me read them. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts. I will write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least... Of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now, we being born again believers of this age have been grafted into that olive tree of the Israel in regard to eternal salvation. We are receiving the benefits of the new covenant uh, in part in our lives through eternal salvation and the promise is through the Holy Spirit and he quotes Jeremiah 31 here as he um, as he emphasizes the covenant but what the Hebrew 
author is particularly emphasizing is verse 17. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Salvation by grace through faith. A promise of assurance of the new covenant in the hearts of those who receive it through the witness of the Holy Spirit in them. And so 1 John 3.24 says, And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby know we that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given to us. 1 John 4.13, Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit. We talked about this this morning in Sunday school. And so what is the assurance of our salvation, it is the Holy Spirit. What is the evidence of the Holy Spirit's indwelling in our lives? Well, as we look at scriptures, we don't see a consistent recognition that the some sort of speaking in tongues is the evidence of the Holy Spirit. As we look through scriptures, we don't see a consistent recognition that health and wealth is an indication of the Holy Spirit. What we see, according to Galatians chapter 5, is that the fruit of the Spirit is the evidence of the indwelling Holy Spirit, which is the assurance of the salvation that we have received by grace through faith, by grace through faith when we believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ unto salvation. And so why don't we Shake off a couple of cobwebs and try to say Galatians 5, 22 and 23 together, the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, right? That is the fruit of the Spirit. That's what shows us that we have the Spirit. Now, I mentioned it this morning that the fruit of the Spirit is not how we are saved. It is an evidence of our salvation. We do not, we are not saved because we exhibit love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. We exhibit love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance because we have the Holy Spirit in dwelling. We need to remember that. So as we close our passage today with the testimony of the speaker that where remission of sins, where remission of iniquity is, there is no more offering for sin, verse 18. As we consider the blood that purchased our redemption, as we look into the reality of the Lord's Supper, we realize most importantly that the purchase was once for all. In that we recognize that there is no fine print. There is no hidden exception. No expectation of performance. No sneaky language. No legalese as is often called sometimes in our uh, vernacular. That is seeking to deceive us into thinking that we have something that we really don't. The price has been paid. The gift has been offered. And to we who have accepted the gift of salvation by belief on Jesus Christ... We are redeemed. 
We have received the remission of sins. We have received it without compromise, once for all, without fail. Proven by the indwelling Holy Spirit in our lives until the day that that faith becomes sight and we no longer need an earnest of our salvation, for we will realize our salvation in full. Now as we observe the Lord's Supper together, let us be mindful of the particular blessings of remission of sins through the once-for-all sacrifice of the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Let's be thankful and let's determine to live our lives in light of this sacrifice. We're about to take part in the elements. We do this once a month at Legacy Baptist Church and it is a remembrance. But it is not a remembrance of our sin. See, the Day of Atonement was a remembrance of sin. Our remembrance is a remembrance of remission of sin. It is a remembrance of the price that was paid so that we don't have to. It is a remembrance of once for all. Let's allow it to be that this evening. Let's pray together.